Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Scran, the podcast that champions the Scottish culinary scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and we're back for another episode dedicated to the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight, which runs from the 5th to the 20th of September. This episode is produced in partnership with Scotland Food and Drink, and we're almost at the end of this amazing campaign, which sees Scotland's food and drink industry celebrate local legends, with regional producers showcasing their produce through their social media, with the aim of encouraging people to source, buy and eat Scottish food and drink. Scran is taking a culinary tour around Scotland, chatting to a range of these local legends about their businesses, produce and their community. This week, I'm on a socially distant tour of the Highlands as I chat to various entrepreneurs about why their location is key to their business success and at the heart of their product. My first guest is Jamie Delap of family-run business Finales based in, you guessed it, Glenfine. The business began in 2001 when his parents decided to turn their dwindling farm into a brewery after sampling craft deals down south and seeing a gap in the market for craft deals in their area. Fast forward to 2014. After building a strong reputation, they converted a sheep shed into a modern British brewery where now beers are sold all over the world. Jamie tells me about why the location of the brewery is key to the taste of their beer, his thoughts on where the craft beer industry is headed and his innovative approach during the pandemic, which involved selling mini casks during lockdown. Now I'm joined by Jamie from Fine Ales, just up the road from me. Hi Jamie, how are you? Hey Rosalind, I'm very well thanks. How's, how's life with yourself? Are you, uh, you say just up the road, is that, that's Glasgow or whereabouts? Yeah, Glasgow, it's, I say that like it's just, it's just up the road. It's not, it's not really, but it's, uh, I feel like it's not that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as, long, as long as the rest is open and everyone can drive over that easily, it's not too bad, is it? Um, so you are the, well, so the brains behind Fine Ales, but you are Fine Ales. Um, can you just tell me the backstory of how it all came to be? Yeah, surely. So, um, so Fine Ales was really a project that, um, that my mum's, uh, my mother and father started back in 2001. You know, my family's had the farm up here for, um, well, well over 100 years now. And, you know, over time, the farm has employed um, fewer and fewer people and also needed fewer and fewer buildings. So, you know, I think they were looking at it and really thinking, well, what, what do we do next? Where, where, where do we go to? And so they really wanted to find a way to bring some uh, more employment into the Glen, to use some of the buildings that, were, that weren't being used. And I think, you know, back in 2001, finding a good pint of beer in Argyle was, um, was pretty tough. I think if you found a pint of Duke's IPA, that was about as good as it got. So having come up, you know, they'd, they'd spent a fair bit of time down south enjoying lots of good car scale down there. So the thought was, well, okay, how do, how do we produce some really good sort of um, British car scales up here and take those out and um, to the sort of the local pubs and hotels around the place and introduce them to that? And so that was the sort of the genesis of the idea. Then, you know, as time, time went forward, you know, built a bit of a reputation and sort of started to get things going. And then, you know, looked very much at, the, um, at what was going on with the beer scene all the way around the world. And, you know, there has been a sort of ex- total explosion in the beer scene around the world over the last 20 years, particularly really 
um, in the UK over the last 10 years. Very much we now focus on how do we bring the best ideas that we can, the best ingredients, the best um, sort of concepts, really, from around the world and overlay them onto great British beer and produce sort of, you know, hopefully great modern British beers. Um, something forward-looking, something interesting. So, as I said, we started in, the, in, a, um, in a small dairy uh, back in 2001. Fast forward to today, and you know, back in 2014, we um, converted an old um, sheep shed that my grandfather built back in the 1950s into um, a really sort of modern, state-of-the-art British brewery. And, um, and you know, we now employ almost 25 people, sell our beers certainly all over the UK, but also to some some nice overseas markets as well. So you know we've been able to establish ourselves with a really good reputation for doing interesting things, um, as well as great modern British beers. Um, and obviously that was all you know. I sort of know from speaking to Brewdog that that time was quite critical with craft beer because you know they came on and were looking to America and that kind of helped the sort the sort of craft beer movement in Scotland. What is the sort of story behind your um, beers and how do they sort of reflect the local area? Yeah, well, you know, I think we are absolutely intrinsically a, um, a product of our location. Everything about our brewery um, sits within the environment here at the sort of head of Loch Fine. We're taking the water straight from the, um, the burns coming down the hillside behind the breweries, um, one for one brewery, one for the other. Um, and that, that's our incoming water, which is so much the sort of fundamental building block of um, any beer. So if you come and, you know, I'm sit- sitting here out in the brewery courtyard, surrounded by traditional farm buildings, we are of, of the place here. We have our own herds of highland cattle and, um, and deer here in the Glen as well. So all of the spent grain from, from the breweries gets fed out, out to the cattle and deer, and then they come, come back and, you know, you can order our venison online or you can um, come and eat a good steak pie here, here at the brewery. So it's all about how does it sort of fit within, within the place. I suppose I should also mention, you know, we, we do a great sort of, you know, once a year, we also welcome several thousand people up for a great, a great festival where we have sort of um, hundreds of beers, lots of music, lots of good food on. So it's very much, it's all about that. How do we tell the story of where we're from and the place? But about three years ago, we, we took that to sort of to another level. So we're like, well, okay, so how do we actually tell the story of the beer locally here? Uh, so we now do this origin series of beers which is really looking back to how beer would have been brewed several hundred years ago, but again, mixing it up with sort of new ideas. So we do lots of beers with um, foraged ingredients. So, um, you know, we've done um, beers with bog myrtle, with um, lots of other herbs that we've managed to find locally. We work with some of the local whiskey distilleries, particularly our friends down in um, at Springbank down in Campbelltown, to use them because we know we're sort of part of the whiskey trail but for these origins beers we're actually just brewing with the yeast that's wild and natural in the air um and using that to produce some very refined very elegant beers but they're nothing like a beer like we would you would know and go into pub and find a pint of these are sort of much more sort of hybrid beer wine cider they sort of sit in that sort of bit of flavor space so basically, so lots, lots of different ways, but um, you know, we are absolutely intrinsically a part of the Glen. We're a part of where where we're from, um, and we try and express that in in lots of different ways. And is it that kind of um, trying to showcase the like local area that leads you to come up with ideas for new beers? Ideas for new beers come from lots of different places. There's all sorts of different sorts of inspirations. So yes, absolutely, we've done. We really enjoy sort of um, collaborating with other people. So we've worked with Springbank using some of their um, peat-smoked malt that they use in their whiskey um, to produce a nicely balanced sort of smoky beer. 
we've worked with um, our friends down at Loch Fine Oysters, who are just a stone's throw away from us, to come up with the perfect beer to pair with their smoked salmon. Um, and we very much we've done a couple of different projects with um, Rob and Pam down at Inver, um, again, just a really nice restaurant just a little further down the loch, taking their ideas, their experience of what, what flavours really work together and bring those together with our brewing techniques, our brewing history, and to tell those stories together. So very much the local area and working with local people um, has been one important source of inspiration. But, you know, we also, you know, we, we do, we probably do sort of um, 50 or 60 new, new beers a year. So a lot of the time we're also, we're, doing collab, we're collaborating with other breweries. Uh, what's, what's fantastic about the um, craft, craft brewing is that we all talk to each other. There, there are no state secrets when it comes to craft brewing. Social media is incredibly important. It's such a great way to talk, talk to our customers and to understand what people are enjoying, what's going on out there. So, you know, get out, talk to people, look for ideas, and then, yeah, a little experimentation internally. A very talented team of brewers, and um, hopefully we produce things that people enjoy. Um, and you've mentioned just uh, talking to other breweries and, like, you know, things that are happening abroad. What direction do you think the craft beer industry is headed? Because I know it's had, like, a huge boom over the last 10 years like you said yeah no that's for sure i mean you know the the you know i've i've been sort of really involved in brewery here for now for sort of just the last um 11 12 years and the industry has changed out of all recognition you know i think mum always says that um the back when we started there were more breweries in the city of bruges in belgium than there were in the whole of scotland and now you have this fantastic explosion. You know, I think, obviously, COVID at the moment is providing a particular course of um, strain and worry to, the, to, the, to everyone in the industry, particularly, you know, the amount of um, that's being sold through pubs. So even though we're seeing the pubs are open, they're not selling anything like the amount of beers that they used to sell. And therefore, you know, that's probably reduced down the range that they can success, successfully offer at any one time. But, you know, what's, what's happening now is as the, as the industry's maturing, you know, we're all about, in craft beer, we're about producing products which our consumers can get passionate about, things that people can really care about and are really interested about and are really excited about. So what's brilliant now is that people are exploding and trying all sorts of different things. So absolutely, you know, we think in Scotland, we see some great examples of sort of modern Scottish breweries that are doing what I would think of as very much sort of the classic American, you know, really hop forward IPAs, and that's really sort of the core of their program. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing people setting up, you know, I think Bolt City in Edinburgh, or Edinburgh and or Dundee, so they're more Dundee now, um, would be an interesting example of a brewery that's just, just really doing multi-fermentation um, sours, but heavily, heavily fruited. And that's their thing. And, you know, it's quite unique. It's quite specific. It won't be for everyone. But there are those people that are just really into that and really enjoying what they do. So I think this, so I think, I think this is where it's going to be. I think we're going to see this explosion of lots of people doing different things and hopefully doing it really, really well, getting their group of consumers really passionately engaged with what they're doing. And I think that's brilliant because I think it'll give consumers more and more choice of different things to do and you know, experiment and to see what are consumers like, what works for them. So more variety and beer done better across a huge gamut of different styles I think. Um, one of the things that you started recently doing was uh, your mini kegs which were available for for people to get delivered to their home but how challenging was it to deliver a keg that would give a quality pint at home and did you find quite good success with that? Was there quite a lot of demand for people basically wanting to have I say yeah. a keg party wouldn't have been a keg party but you know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> yes. 
we've done these many casks and we've been sort of you know slowly over time you know you learn what works you learn how what you've got to do to present the beer really well for customers at home but what was really interesting is that kind of come the beginning of lockdown and everyone's missing the pub they probably mostly want to be out with their friends sitting, sitting in a nice environment but as well as that um you know what they also wanted was a pint of real ale uh, which would have been what, what a lot of people would have been drinking at that moment in time. So we saw saw at the beginning of lockdown an absolute explosion in demand for um for mini casks of of our sort of real ales, um and that's that's and that's been absolutely fantastic and has pow- powered on forwards. So in fact, we now do a sort of subscription club so people can sign up and get a couple of casks every month because you know we were seeing so many people just keeping on reordering, reordering, reordering. We thought, well, okay, let's 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 make that a regular thing then. So yeah, no, I think I think I think sort of mini cast real ale have been absolutely fantastic and have really um, helped to get 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 that out to lots of different people. So you know, I'm I'm really happy with the product. It tastes tastes brilliant, but it will never have quite the level of condition that a really skilled cellarman can put into it because really the technology for doing that and the way of packaging just doesn't exist. There's a real art form that pub cellarmen have, and they know how best to prepare and present a pint of beer. Um, and you know, and it requires letting the beer settle for sort of two to three days, letting it vent, getting it just in the perfect condition, and then putting it on the bar just when that individual cask of beer is ready to go. And um, that's that's going to be beyond beyond what anyone wants to do at home. But we're really happy with the product product that we put out there, and you know, we think it sort of stands up extremely well. We love the fact that our consumers consumers all enjoy them. And just to bring it back to Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight, which is happening just now, their theme is celebrating local heroes. So what does being a local hero mean to you? And do you have a local hero of your own? Wow. So, um, yeah, the, lo- the local heroes thing is, you know, that that's really appreciated because, you know, everything we do here, we only do because people enjoy it. Um, you know, we started out with a, with a tiny little brewery and our philosophy from the beginning has been, if people enjoy what we do, we'll do, do some more of that. And if they don't, well, we'll change. We'll do something slightly different. And what's been absolutely fantastic is that so many people do enjoy what we do. And as I said sort of uh, a little earlier, we are a product of place and where we're from. So, so that local hero idea is, is fantastic for us. We, we, we really appreciate that anyone would think of us as a local hero. If I was thinking of local heroes, gosh, you know, I'd, I'd have an awfully long list, if I was honest. So if I had to choose one local hero, it's not so much a... F- food producer but as you know i i I am hugely impressed with um what rob and pam are doing down at inver in terms of the quality of the um the food food that they 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 make down there i absolutely love what they do so if i had to choose one i'd probably probably go with them i've um i've heard lots of really good things they're on my wish list so hopefully i'll get to go there at some point and I still need to come to your festival i've still never been (laughs) yeah you, you you definitely need to come up and do that it is just um you know, it started just here, here in the courtyard that I'm sitting in now with just like a couple of hundred people. And, you know, the whole point is just to celebrate um, Glen Fine and everything that makes this place sort of work so well as far as we're concerned. And yeah, just, you know, a really good fun. Lots of good music and um, yeah, fun times. <laughs> Uh, well, that's great. Um, thank you very much for your time. It was great to find out more um, about finals and yeah, I'll hopefully, hopefully be up to visit soon when, when we can. <laughs> Brilliant, Rosie. You'll, you'll be extremely welcome and I'll look forward to wel- welcoming you until we can sit down and try try a few different beers together. See, see, see what's good. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Remember to celebrate the best that Scotland's food and drink industry has to offer. 
by taking part in the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight from the 5th till the 20th of September. Food and drink producers can get involved by posting on social media about why you, your business, products or people make Scotland's food and drink industry so special under the hashtag ScottFoodFort20 and tagging the at ScottFoodDrink handle on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. My next guest is Jill Clark of Highland Connage Cheese, an award-winning family-owned organic cheesemaker which started 15 years ago on a farm near Inverness. They started as a wholesaler but after locals turned up looking to buy cheese, they decided to convert a spare room into a retail shop. Jill and her husband Callum are responsible for the cheese side of the business, while the farming side includes breeding and herd management, which is run by Cameron and his wife Aileen. The organic herd is made up of 150 cows that graze clover pastures around the dairy and along the seaside of the Murray Firth. I talked to Jill about the craze of wedding cheesecakes, how to pair cheese with what's on your plate, and why being organic and ethical in their approach to dairy farming is an important part of their ethos. I'm now joined by Jill from Connage Highland Dairy. Hi Jill, how are you? Hi Rosalind, how are you going? I'm fine, how are you? Yeah. It's been one of those weeks. <laughs> oh, I'll say, yes, trying to get things sorted. It's difficult times, we'll say, or challenging yeah. times, I should say. <laughs> um, so can you just tell me, how did the um, dairy start? We've been going 15 years now, and the reason why we decided to make uh, add value to our milk was um, the milk prices, organic milk prices dropped uh, quite a while ago. And the two brothers, my husband Callum and his younger brother Cameron, they were swithering whether to give up the uh, give up the dairy or to add value to the milk. So we did a marketing survey and then we decided we would go into cheese because we felt that that's what we would use all our milk for. And that was a long time ago. So here we are now making a range of organic cheeses. And, um, you know, we're very glad that we did. So did you start off, um, was it mainly wholesale and before you went into retail or what was sort of the journey? Yeah, it was all wholesale that we uh, started with. Um, So we started off making three cheeses and that was because we wanted a cheese for sale. So some of them were aged longer than the others. So we always felt that having a larger range we would always have cheese to sell. Uh, so that's how we started. And then we people were coming, the locals were coming to the back door wanting to buy cheese. So we um, decided that we would turn the room that we had spare uh, into a retail shop. And then it's kind of gone from there, really. Uh, now we have international cheeses as well. So, And how do you source ingredients for the different cheeses? All the milk comes from our organic dairy which Cameron uh, manages, and uh, Callum manages the cheese. So then we have British salt that we use because you need salt in cheese for preservative. And then we have the cultures that come from uh, Europe, which are very minimal. But because the farm and the cheeses are organic, we have to stick to very strict rules uh, for making cheese as well as the farm and the cows as well. And is it these kind of um, rules that sort of dictate how you raise the cows and their calves? I know that's a bit of a topic right now. Yeah, right. Well, it's not only the rules. The the boys have looked after these cows all their lives and they've got a connection to them. So uh, we get audited. The farm and the dairy is audited by SOPA, which is um, Scottish Organic Producers Association linked um, with the Soil Association. So we follow very strict rules. But Callum and Cameron have been brought up with these cows and and it's the way that they treat them that we have wonderful milk. 
And you don't have a Scottish accent, so I'm assuming no. you've come over. <laughs> no, I mean, I've been here 26 years, so I thought I'd lost it, but it's not until I speak on the phone or I never notice it. I think like I speak like everybody else, but obviously not. But uh, 26 years ago, uh, or 27 really, I met Callum out um, in West Australia. Uh, the family have a, a wheat and sheep farm out there and uh, Stuart and his wife Melanie uh, run the farm out there and that's how I met Ca- uh, Callum. So it was a delight. I love living in Scotland actually. Apart, apart from the weather, I always tell everybody <laughs> I came here, came here for love, not the weather. Yeah, well, you'd need to. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the cheeses, um, people have started having cheese wedding cakes. Is that something that you kind of provide? Oh, yes. We, apart from this year, we've only done one this year, but we normally do at least about 30 or 40 a year. Obviously a trend at the moment, which is a lovely trend, but I think fruit cakes uh, for wedding cakes is terribly expensive. So the cheeses now um, have taken over, thank goodness. And it gives the people a little bit, that gives the wedding couple a little bit more of a, a scope on what they can have for their wedding. And you, you can make it kind of fit the wedding theme and it's, it's not just like, oh, there's some cheese, yeah. they can look quite nice. Well, we, we get the, the bride and groom come in. We choose the ones that they like, but also we've got in my, the back of our minds uh, colours to match the wedding colours, the flowers. Uh, we have designs in mind for them. Um, some are sort of a little bit off the planet. Other ones are quite traditional with, with Scottish uh, tartan ribbon around the, the cheeses with different colours, different flowers, different fruits. So it's lovely. We get a lot of good feedback and lots of lovely photos. I think we probably all really appreciate a cheddar, but um, what would be your tips for people to become more adventurous in their choice of cheese? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a cheese freak, so <laughs> when, I buy some, when I buy something, I always take a photo of the label with my phone. So if you're going to a cheesemonger, buy cheese, and then the next time you go back, have a look at the ones that you bought and try something new. And this is where the cheesemonger's talent comes in as to encourage you to try something new. Also, you know, looking at uh, what you had last time and yeah, just, just a little bit of encouragement. I think, unfortunately, at the moment, we're not able to do tastings, but we've always encouraged our customers to, to have a taste of the cheese before they buy, but that's not possible at the moment. So they're relying on your on the cheesemonger to actually tell them uh, what the flavours are. Uh, which leads me to my next question. What is the secret to creating a great cheese board? Oh, well, if it's just cheese and wine, you can just go for it and think outside the box. But if you're, <laughs> if you're having a, a meal uh, before your cheese board, you've got to think about what you're serving. Is it a, a heavy or a light meal? What do you prefer to drink with your with your cheese board, and that has a lot on it. So if you've got a, a heavy meal with cream, you'll find that you probably don't want a triple cream cheese for the end of your meal. So it's looking at all the different things and then working your cheese board around about what you're having, what other things you're having to eat or drink. I um, always think it's quite nice to actually, you know, pick out a, a lovely glass that you can have, you know, with your whiskey or port or a sweeter wine with a blues you know, it's it's quite nice to set up, set it up, and and make it look good. And how are different varieties of cheeses created? I know you've mentioned certain ones are matured at different times, but is is that the main way of getting different flavours? 
Well, it really depends on the recipe. And no two cheesemakers can make the same cheese because, you know, the cows are eating a different diet and, and different uh, geographical area, uh, areas, temperatures and things. But mostly um, it's to do with each cheese has a different temperature when you're making it, different pH. Also, the cultures and the milk are slightly different. Um, also, too, the animal feed that you're feeding your cows on will certainly affect the milk um, and the recipe. So you're really looking for a recipe to suit your milk and then adapting it to what, how your milk is, whether it's high protein and fat. Also, too, maturation time. So some of our cheeses sit in the store for seven months, like the Dunlop. And then the cheddars sit there for sort of around about 18 months to two years. And then there are other ones that are, um, you know, like the cromel comes out around about four weeks old, three to four weeks old. That's lovely and fresh and lemony. So you're not looking for a huge flavor with that because it's so young. So it really just depends on how your cheesemaker, and that's the skill of the cheesemaker, to make the different cheeses. And so once we've got our cheeses, what top tip would you give when cooking with cheese? Well, this is the thing. <laughs> it's actually better to choose the right uh, cheese for your recipe. If you're, you know, grating cheese on top of something like pasta or, or um, soup, don't put it on too early because if you do, sometimes it goes a little bit gluggy with the heat. So just put your parmesan on or whichever cheese it is on your meal um, just before you serve it. The other thing is is just to pop your um, cheese in because if it's slightly softer and you want to grate it or you want to slice it, sometimes if you just pop it in the freezer for you know half an hour or something, it really does give it make it much easier for you to slice. And the thing also too, any rinds or cheese that is looking at, you know, you're not too happy with, it's gone cracked and you don't think you can put it on your cheese board, just pop it in a freezer bag with all the rinds of your cheese. And the next time you're making a casserole or a soup or a pasta sauce, just throw them in. And then if there's anything that's sort of still left there, uh, like a rind or, or a um a waxed rind, just fish it out before you serve. But, you know, now we're coming into winter, it's tatiflet, which um, which is made with the reblochon and potatoes. And also, too, there's fondues are quite popular now and uh, raclette as well, good melting cheese. I say this like I know, but it's good like after ski cheese, isn't it? They do that quite a lot. <laughs> it's becoming quite, I think it's a little bit cheaper over here than it is when you ski, um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's really quite popular now. Um, and the the theme for this year's Scot Scottish Food and Drink uh, Fortnite is local legends. So what would you say makes you a local legend and who would you say is your local legend? Well, I have to say it's a great honour to be a local legend because it doesn't feel like it. We're just working what we know best every day. But, you know, cheesemakers, it, it's been tough for us, the smaller cheese cheesemakers, or Jane Stewart from St Andrew's Cheese Company. And also um, one of our legends here is um, Gillian Glen Allingham from Really Garlicky. Uh, they produce garlic from uh, just in the other side of Nairn, so not far away. So it's all the little producers that the last few months or the last six months has been quite difficult. So and everybody has put in an enormous effort. Um, so I, I would say everybody's a local legend, really. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Jill. It's been great to find out more about cheese, and I'm going to go off and make myself a cheese board. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Rosalind. My final guest is Keith Patterson, founder of Shore Seaweed. Based in Wick, they are growers, harvesters, and processors of natural Scottish seaweed. 
The idea for the business began in 2016 when Keith, along with three others, looked for commercially viable opportunities in their local area, whilst also wanting to give back to the Highland community. They discovered that seaweed found on their shores was a way to start a sustainable business. My conversation with Keith was very interesting, as we talked about his mission to make seaweed a sustainable plant-based food of the future, which brings lots of health benefits whilst being good for the planet. I'm now joined by Keith Patterson of Shore Seaweed. Hi Keith, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Rosalind. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. So just to kind of dive straight dive straight in, <laughs> could you tell me a bit about the backstory of your business? Well, our business um, started with a group of people rather than an idea, first of all. A group of diverse backgrounds um, from aquaculture to a more academic marine biology and from the commercial food industry. Um, and as a group, we looked at opportunities that are, of course, commercially viable, but also in this world that will be sustainable um, and good for the local community in the Highlands. From that group, um, we discovered seaweed as a great idea. Um, and since then, we've built our business to where we are today with our shore brand. What would be the main use for seaweeds? Like I know Mara Seaweed down in Fife, they have like a, almost like a an alternative to salt but is there you know other things that you guys are doing so seaweed can be used in hundreds of different applications so salt replacement is one of them so seaweed provides a low sodium version of salt with this umami taste and actually this umami taste is critical umami flavor is like the flavor you'd imagine from tomato ketchup it's known as a yum taste Um, and seaweed provides a lot of that so for flavor it can be added into stocks or sauces give a real background punch to those products. The likes of um, different species, such as sea spaghetti, it can be used as a low-carb version of needles or pasta, so long, thin ribbons with a nice crunch to them. Chefs around the UK use dulse very frequently, pairing it in butters and sauces or with seafood, and that's a really complex, deep, rich flavour. You can also put it into breads, so for baking. And also you can fortify foods to make sure that much seaweed can provide a nutritional background in foods. So you can use seaweed just to add nutrition into existing products. So you can use it both for flavour and for nutrition. And um, you've mentioned uh, your location in terms of the best seaweed, but where you are in Scotland, does that kind of play a factor in how the seaweed tastes, like the different types? Where we're based in Scotland is absolutely critical to our business. Scotland is has a fantastic opportunity with seaweed because we've got the right waters, cool, clean waters. We have areas of very low pollution. Seaweed is so nutritious because it absorbs nutrients from the waters, so you need to make sure it's very clean waters. So what provides the perfect location for those clean waters? Little land pollution, so it's very, very clean. But also it gives us great accessibility to the seaweed so we can actually get onto the sites and harvest it. And it also provides a number of species that you'd want to eat. One of the amazing things about seaweed, it's made up of a lot of different species. Only a certain number you really want to eat. And wick is a great proportion of really great edible seaweeds. So that means our seaweed is really heavy in nutrition from from the clean waters. and really tasty because of the species that we can harvest in that location. Once you've you've harvested the seaweed, what do you turn it into? Like what products do you sell? So we, when we first started this project, saw there's two challenges. One is how can we create an industry? If you like, how can we scale the seaweed um, raw material and get enough of it? And B then, how do we bring it to the UK consumer? 
So we've got two areas of the business. One where we sell our seaweed to other food manufacturers, to chefs, to restaurants. And then we have a second area where we've created our own brand, where seaweed is at the very heart. It's our hero ingredient. So our short brand today is a range of snacks in terms of crisps and snacking clusters that are better for you snacks. So they deliver nutrition and health or not compromising the flavor. And then to bring seaweed into people's homes, we've created a range of pestos and tapenades. So what we're trying to do with our seaweed is present it to consumers in a way that they'll recognize in a taste format that they'll recognize and welcome. Nice. And is it these kind of pestos and tapenades, is that what you would recommend cooking with in terms of recipes for seaweed? So there's, there's a huge amount you can do with it recipe-wise. Pestos and tapenades are a great idea. All our brands um, and our products are 100% plant-based. And for those on a plant-based diet, seaweed is fantastic. It delivers some of the nutrition that you need in a plant-based diet. At home, um, certainly the easiest one is a salt replacement. You can One of the great things with dulse is you can actually just fry it and it's like a bacon replacement. Um, so there's no end of things you can do with the product. Um, but what our goal is, is to start providing inspiration to the customer by providing pre-prepared products made with seaweed um, and that makes it a lot easier for people to use. It's something that we have quite a lot of in Scotland and we don't seem to utilise it as much as maybe other parts of the world like Japan so do you think it's just in people's mindset they don't think of seaweed as something that you could eat there may be sort of lack of education there? Absolutely um, you know just when we say the word seaweed there's you know there's 10,000 different kind of species of seaweed so that you know it's as diverse as I'm saying a vegetable so there's a huge amount of education to take place to get people to understand how to use it um, you know traditionally where seaweed's been sold in the UK people have harvested it put it in a bag and it's healthy and it's nutritious there's always been the struggle of what to do with it um, and it might take half an hour to cook it or rehydrate it so there's been this barrier to consumers using it. So, you know, very much we're on a journey of trying to educate the consumer in the process of how to use seaweed. You know, as you rightly point out, in Asia, it can be up to 5 or 10% of the diet is made up of seaweed. And the number of health benefits that people get from it in Asia is incredible. We want to introduce that to the UK, but it's a long process of educating people and bringing it into our diet, where traditionally it's not been, or certainly it's not been for you know, the last 50 or 100 years. Um, and you've mentioned the health benefits. Um, what, what are the, the main ones? The, the global thing is to say it's one of the most nutrient-dense plants on the planet. What does it provide? Uh, number one, it provides great complex fibre, which is fantastic for gut health. It's really packed full of soluble and insoluble fibre that does fantastic things for your gut. The second thing is um, it's actually a plant-based source of protein. Um, and provides omega-3s, all things that we're looking for a diet. Um, and then the real star of the show is minerals. So it's potassium, iron, calcium, but in particular, iodine. Iodine is something that research has shown that in the UK specifically, we lack in our diets. Um, and iodine is great for your metabolism, for skin health, and for cognitive function. Seaweed provides your daily dose of iodine in one portion. The, the issue with iodine is getting more challenging for people on plant-based diets because naturally we get our iodine from dairy products. So seaweed is a real hero in that front. And lastly, it's packed full of antioxidants. So it, it is, you really need two or three grams of seaweed in your diet to provide you with all these things. And then if we look at this ongoing research around seaweed and weight loss and heart conditions, so I think we're only just scratching the surface of, of the health benefits of seaweed. And I think over the 
the years to come, we're going to find there's a lot more. You've mentioned sustainability um, and it's important to your ethos. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, when, when we looked at, you know, business ideas and what we wanted to do, some of the challenges we look at is how do we sustainably feed um, a growing population globally? How do we meet the needs of people looking for a more nutrient-rich diet? And how do we meet the needs of people looking for a further plant-based diet? And, and seaweed just naturally is incredibly environmentally friendly. So as it grows, and eventually, you know, seaweed farming will be the future. Seaweed actually absorbs CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, so it's, it's carbon positive, which is quite a quite remarkable thing. And unlike most crops or, or, or agriculture, it doesn't require any inputs to grow. You can literally put it into the sea and it'll grow from the natural nutrients in the water. So we don't need to create any feed. It doesn't use any landmass, no fertilizers or pesticides. So on that front, it really is quite an unrivaled plant to grow. And again, if we look at you know the aquaculture possibilities, Scotland um, naturally has great aquaculture infrastructure through salmon and mussel farming. Um, so again, Scotland has a quite a advantage in being able to move in this and take advantage of the opportunities. The theme for this year's Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight is local heroes. What does that mean to you and who would be your local hero? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, it means a lot to us. I mean, we just launched our Shore brand products in May this year. Um, and we think we're doing something quite innovative and forward thinking and bringing a new food industry to Scotland. Um, Scotland has a superb food and drink industry overall, but bringing something new to the table that's in fact one of the traditional strengths of Scottish food and drink is really important. And, and, and for that to be recognised is fantastic because we realise we're on quite a long journey in this project, an exciting one. And the second part of your question, who would be my local food hero? I think there are a number of companies rather than saying that I think have done a fantastic job in terms of we look at the likes of Walker Shopbread, about getting the shopbread Scottish name and products all around the world. I think if we look at healthy products and what Nairns have done with the Humble Oat, it's been fantastic. So rather than a person, those are two companies I think um, show a great way forward from about creating a Scottish product that can go global and creating healthy products. Nice. Uh, well, thank you very much, Keith. That was very interesting. It's a lot about seaweed. Um, I grew up in a, a seaside town in Fife, so it's it's great to know that the thing that I used to be scared of as a child is actually quite nutritious. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rosalind. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to my guests, Keith, Jamie and Jill. And thanks to you for listening to another episode of Scran. Thanks to everyone who has been rating the podcast on Apple. And for anyone who enjoys listening and hasn't yet rated the podcast, please give us that golden five-star review. Just like any foodie, I'd really appreciate it. We would like to thank Scotland Food & Drink for partnering with us on this episode. It's been a pleasure working with them on their local hero campaign, and it's great to see Scottish producers thriving. Remember to visit fooddrinkfort.scot for ways to get involved in the Scottish Food & Drink fortnight from the 5th to the 20th of September. Scran is a laudable production and is available wherever you get your podcasts, but for immersive and interactive content, you can download the Intel app. Scran is presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morgan McIntyre. Music